AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. John, so you have some news for us about a router exploit that we're seeing? Uh, we do. Uh, so this one's actually got a lot of traction over the past week or so here. Um, there's a particular manufacturer of a home-type router. These routers are called GPON routers by a manufacturer called Dasan, D-A-S-A-N. So uh, there's a remote code execution vulnerability that can be leveraged on these devices. It's very simple, trivial to exploit, and uh, it allows you basically to, you know, execute this program, whatever, and it's a Linux-based thing, I believe. The router software doesn't adequately check um, all the inputs coming in, so there's a way to remotely execute code and take over the device. Uh, initial estimates of how many were actually out there from the company was around 250,000 or something, I think they said. But in Shodan, we're able to see that there's a far larger number of these out there, probably about a million or so. Uh, NetLab 360 put out a very interesting report. What they're able to notice here with these GPON routers in particular is that there are about five or six different botnet families all jockeying to scoop these up into their botnet right now. And so they mentioned Metal, uh, Moose Stick, uh, Mirai, which uh, most of us are familiar with Mirai. Hajime is another one that's very familiar to, I know we've talked about on the show before, and Satori. Uh, Satori is interesting because if everybody hangs around for the internet weather segment, We've got some of that interplay in the internet weather showing up as well with respect to Satori and this activity. So I guess that's the basic nutshell of the story is that, you know, yet again, another uh, type of IoT type of device, a router in this case, that has a remote code execution that can be exploited. Um, because it's in a lot of consumer footprints, there's a very wide deployed base of it out there. The problem with a lot of these routers is people get them they got them 10 years ago, they deployed them. As long as they continue to work, they don't change them, they don't patch them, and you know, they're just gonna stay out there. I notice um, when I unplug or hit the reset button on my home router, it always kind of checks in and sees if there's an update. And if there is, you kind of see the, the fast uh, blink for a while while it's downloading new software. Is that happening now on these, or is this not patched? Yet? I don't believe so. Uh, they're very old, first of all. So you probably have a very new router. Right. Because uh, most modern routers, they have added features. This has become a problem that we talk about a lot. These particular ones we're talking about, these Dasan GPON routers, are at least 10 years old. So they've been out there for quite a while, and um, they probably do not have uh, an auto-update kind of capability like a lot of, within, the, I would say, within the past two, three years, that's become kind of very common in, in uh, newer routers nowadays to have automatic update features. You know, we've heard the story before, right? I mean, the home user is likely not going to take the time to patch the router, let alone even know what the passwords are to it. So, again, like you said, newer routers are good because they can get updated remotely up to the service provider to be able to uh, to send those patches down, but not surprising. Yeah, I think if I think back 10 years, I remember buying a, a new router and uh, I immediately get out the manual, paper manual, and start looking through it. Right. And I'm looking for the login, the password, and it's on page 21. And I'm thinking, what 20 pages worth of information were more important than here's the default login and password on this device? You know, that shows you the expectation they have of the end user to do anything about it, right? I mean, you move the password all the way back to page 20, and more important, just plug it in, 
turn it on, look for the green lights. Right. right. And for most people, if it works right out of the box once they plug it in, they're probably going to leave it, um, which might be a mistake, if, especially if it has default passwords or a vulnerability like this one that we're talking about. If you know that you have these types of devices in your network, which is probably a little unlikely if you're in the United States, um, that you should either swap them out or replace them. You could probably patch it too, but I would say a device that I think it's affecting most of the older models, so I would probably replace it if I was gonna do anything, if I did have them. Hey Todd, I understand you're looking into a story about Gand Crab uh, ransomware and how that's been kind of spreading out there on the internet. Yeah, well, it's nothing new, right? We've been hearing about this ransomware for quite some time. Uh, we've gone through version one, now we're on version two. The researchers are seeing a significant uptick in email spam in delivering this ransomware. So they'll send an email with an attachment, like a zip file that might contain some VB script or something in it. And if you go through all those gyrations to open those attachments and execute them, you may end up infected with this ransomware, which would be bad. Which makes this one of particular interest is a couple of things. One, they're seeing an uptick in legitimate websites that are now hosting this malware, right? So what these adversaries are doing is they're compromising known good websites that typically have vulnerabilities that just haven't been patched for whatever reason, and they're using those as the malware server. So the bad actor here that's running this ransomware scheme is compromising legitimate websites and installing the malware up there so that has a better chance that the user will actually get to it and it won't be blocked by antivirus or a network-based perimeter firewall that knows that this would be bad. And it seems to be targeting mostly small businesses is what they're seeing. So organizations that typically don't have the manpower, the resources, to, or whatever, to even know about patch management, let alone you know, understand the vulnerabilities and go and apply the patches. And then the second interesting thing about this particular, if we're saying with this malware, is that there's a lot more as a service out there. So on the dark web, there's an advertisement where um, there's an organization that will pay you 60 to 70% of the actual ransomware collected, and they keep the difference in VIG for providing technical support to you for uh, delivering and deploying the ransomware. So Todd, if you, if you use a legitimate website to host this, won't people, uh, if it's really popular, won't people who use that site complain and let the legitimate website, uh, whoever owns that, know that uh, I got infected on your site and you guys need to clean this up? Well, as you know, most of this, a lot of this happens in the background, right? The legitimate user doesn't know it. So they'll just program the malware to go out to the particular website and pull it down. The user doesn't have to visit it. They're just, they're just interacting with it in the background. That's always concerning to me that, you know, you can kind of spread these out across a bunch of legitimate websites, especially when there's a big, vast pool of them out there that are potentially usable to you. And, um, and you could probably get away with your, your, your scam or technique here for a while until somebody catches up with you. Or even if they do, you can move to another one, you know, and, and keep it going. I think that was kind of the, the most interesting and different part of Todd's story, because uh, instead of standing up a malicious website and then somebody can shut it down, and you can kind of put it in your filters and say, don't let anybody go there, if it's on all these other sites, it's a lot harder to just simply take it down. Ransomware is troubling, you know. A lot of the ransomwares we've seen, they like to target, um, instead of like certain individuals or like mass ransomware infections, they'll target companies or other types of agencies that can't tolerate downtime very well, like a hospital 
or a transportation department or things of that nature. Yeah, I sense kind of from the background noise that I hear that uh, they do their homework, so they kind of know if there's willingness to pay, and that they kind of toy around with the price until they get a really good price that they right. think is about as much as they can get without people not being willing to pay it. Right. So, right, we talked right. about this before, and they also have to make sure that they're legitimizing the business in some sense, right? So if you do pay, they want to make sure you're decrypting your file so that it validates the reason for paying. All right. Well, another one to keep an eye out on, and uh, hopefully you don't see it in your company or business. Um, but you know, knowledge is power. So being aware of it definitely helps you uh, prevent your company from becoming a victim of it. You might be someone who hosts one of these websites uh, that got compromised, and if that's the case, you probably want to have good practices around checking. Um, if any new files show up on your web server. Make sure you have good backups so you don't have to pay a ransom. Uh, and then there's always the initial attack vector. So hopefully you have defenses and your people uh, are very uh, security aware, cyber savvy, so that they won't fall for whatever that, that lure is, whatever that trick is to get you to click or open something that you shouldn't. Hey, Michael, I hear you have a story up for us out of Cornell about passwords and possible password reuse. Yeah, I, I, I read a very interesting um, a take on passwords from a couple of, uh, of university uh, scholars who were putting a paper out, kind of getting people thinking about a new approach to passwords. And their idea was uh, when you enter a new password, check and see if you're already using it somewhere else. Uh, and if you are, you know, reject it. So it's even making it harder one more right. hoop making it harder to for jump people through. to reuse the same password right. uh, across multiple websites exactly by federating them all together in a way some some like pseudo federation so that was where i thought we were going first with this was hey you know you should just have like one login you know, like there's a lot of them now where you, i'm going to use something right, else to right. log in i thought now that actually takes some pain out of it like a single sign on type right. solution thing, but that's right. not what they're really proposing they're proposing just to make it more painful to reuse the password and then at the end they finally do say so that people will use password managers right so then it can be anything it can be random characters if you're going to use password manager software to log into sites I think everyone uh, would like to see us get past having to remember passwords. And you know, password stuffers, they're effective. That's something you can do. But we um, also have some people in the industry you know, pushing some pretty big ideas around using the mobile device as a way to allow for stronger authentication. As I talk to experts um, you know, in the industry and then experts internally that we work with, that there's a lot of thinking around the mobile device that the end user carries with them everywhere. Like right. That is a really uh, important um, enabler to checking a lot of things, you know, uh, how they hold it, how they type. You can put certificates on it. So I think there might be some other ways to get us to uh, you know, a more secure experience without doing this extra hoop of having everybody check in with all the other sites to see if that password is already in use. I'll tell you what, my head spins from all the possibilities of error and that concept of sharing passwords and validating against each other. And then, you know, as you said earlier, federating, is there going to be a central database? Or, you know, how would that even work? Yeah, you could be an imposter in there. Says, I just want to check. Right. Let me know all, all your new users and what passwords they're, they're using, right? right? And just log them and write them somewhere, you know? Yeah, let's say you got a bad actor inside of the organization at one of these other companies, right? And they have access to logs that show that you tried to use the same password at this site. So now they know that you're, you may be, you know, there's, there's all kinds of issues there. Yeah, I could see potential for abuse 
of that API used to check against these sites to see if it's you know, the, the same password. It's an interesting solution to a problem though, because credential stuffing has been a big problem uh, over the past few years. There's all these data breaches that happen and um, you get these credential dumps where it's like people's email address or login ID and password. And then what these guys do is they take all these uh, credential dumps and then they'll run them against all these different websites like Facebook or whatever, all these other various large websites to see if the same, that user used the same password. So it is a problem because it happens a lot, but I'm not sure that this is, this is the most um, streamlined solution, so to speak, for fixing that problem. I'm not well, sure. Imagine instead of having to run it against all those other websites, you just go to use it at this one and it tells you it's using it at others already. Right, right. One thing I have heard security professionals say is that they're protecting a site and they'll see like activity that they know is like wrong, right? And like, but they were using legitimate login and password. And like, but how did they get that? And a lot of times they'll say, well, we're not even sure they got it from us. It could be what you're talking about. Right, they got right. it off of some list somewhere from some other compromised site. So right. that's the part I think that's troubling. Like, how do we get past that, right? Right. Although we've been saying all along, use different passwords on every website you go to. Right. I highly recommend using some kind of password safe that generates a complex password for each website. There's a lot of good password manager uh, tools out there. Um, a lot of them are free. Most of them have a lot of convenience functions. So you can just like click on that website and it'll pre-populate it into the web browser and log you in automatically. So that's what I would recommend is to, you know, get a password manager and then use it. And uh, so it has unique passwords on each website. All right, Michael, so I thought we'd take a look at the internet weather for this week, and we actually have some interesting stuff to take a look at. This is the most probe port, so this is where we see most of the scanning activity. No surprises, we're gonna ignore the ones we talk about all the time, like Telnet, SSH, uh, Microsoft SQL Server, web. Uh, this is your uh, Microsoft file sharing, which a lot of the, um, is it WannaCry? Yeah. Uh, was going after that. Now, this one, port 8080 TCP, is interesting. That's the alternate HTTP port, uh, as its well-known port. But we'll get into what this is all about. Uh, the Ethereum, uh, it's Ethereum cryptocurrency wallet. We've talked about that on the show. That's crept back up into the top 10 again, remote desktop protocol. And then at the bottom, well, there's uh, HTTPS, and then um, the bottom is uh, Redis server, I think. Is it Redis? Redis. Redis. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to go take a closer look at that one as well. In terms of the most sources probing, we have some repeated cast of characters and some interesting things in here. So 8080 TCP, not only did we see a lot of scan probes on it, but we're seeing a lot of sources scanning on this. It's in the uh, number three spot now. And this is that Android debugger service. We're not going to look at it today, but we talked about it on the show. There's still some continued scanning activity there, uh, trying to recruit devices into that botnet. Uh, port 3333 TCP, we have not seen that on the list. The last time, last week it was at position number 225, which is really way down on the list. It's gone up 218 positions, it's in the number seven position, and we'll talk about why that is Great. Uh, in a little bit as well. The other ones, uh, BitTorrent, probably not interesting, probably not really malware related for the most part. Um, and then 81 TCP is related most frequently to the go-ahead web server vulnerability that's been out there since last year, and we're still seeing some repeated scanning for that activity as well. So let's take a closer look at 
uh, the Redis uh, vulnerability. So it's kind of a choppy chart. So I actually did a 10-day moving average on this one. This is for the past four months or so, let's say. You can see there's a real normal kind of noise floor of activity here. Um, and then somewhere around the late March timeframe, we started to see a real steady uptick in the number of uh, amount of scanning on it. And there is a uh, particular family of malware that's out there, uh, Redis WannaMine, which is a cryptocurrency miner that is trying to exploit Redis servers. And Imperva did a really good write-up of this story back on March 8th, which aligns relatively with when we started to see that uptick of activity. And uh, I did kind of pull out a little piece of their segment here. Once it um, infects the server, the Redis server, it actually puts a scan tool on here. And Matt is using MassScan, which is a really popular uh, open source um, mass scanning tool. And you can see that they're scanning on port 6379 sure. at a rate of 20,000 scan probes per second. So it's pretty high. So uh, that's one to keep an eye on. If you have Redis servers as part of your network infrastructure, especially if it's internet facing, highly recommend that you secure those. So now port 8080 TCP, this is the GPON vulnerability. And you can see right around May 8th or 9th, so to speak, we started to see a real uptick in the number of sources scanning. So we went from basically very few to about, let's just eyeball it, saying like 26,000 scan sources per hour, roughly speaking. And um, this is definitely directly related to that vulnerability being announced last week, or maybe the week before even. And we started to immediately start to see a lot of botnets try to exploit this. Uh, NetLab 360 put together a really good write-up on this. They talk about the various botnets that ha they've seen starting to leverage this. I expect you're going to see a lot more. It's really easy. And uh, I looked in our honeypot that we have, and I saw lots of probes come in. So one of the things I thought was interesting is their user agent is hello world that they're passing. That's a very unusual user agent. It's not valid. And then they're passing in these form parameters to the GPON. You can see that they're posting to the GPON form here. This is part of the exploit. And what they're doing is, is uh, in the dest host, they're sticking in extra stuff in here. So they put a semicolon, and then they put their own command. And pluses actually get you know, changed to spaces. So it's basically fetching this from this URL, writing it to this file slash temp slash r, and then it executes that. So then the other thing that I found interesting is that port 3333 TCP that we also uh, saw climb up from like the sub 200 position all the way up into like six or seven. It's a little bit later. It still happens around 0509. Looks like they might have done some testing around that same time that the 8080 was happening. But then it really kicked off maybe two days later and uh, up into the 11,000 or so scan SIPs per hour. It's likely related that all of this activity is related to the Satori malware, which the NetLab360 guys called out in their article. Um, and it looks like they're exploiting the Claymore management port. So Claymore is a uh, cryptocurrency mining management type of piece of software. I recognized it because in our honeypot, we saw this come in. And immediately when I saw this hex mumbo jumbo, most people like myself would look at that and say, well, that's ASCII. I can tell that that looks like ASCII. And I thought I would bring this up because I wanted to mention a tool that a lot of us use. And I never really get a chance to mention it on the show. The GCHQ, which is part of the UK government, 
uh, they actually released open source this tool called CyberChef. It's a client-side tool that allows you to do lots of operations on things. So I took that um, blob of hex that was there in our previous slide, and I put it in here and I said, convert it from hex, and then it shows me what is this actually trying to do. And you can see it's actually trying to run this ETH DCR miner 64. It's trying to join a particular pool. This is the Ethernet wallet ID that it's trying to connect with, et cetera, et cetera. So basically what happened is bad actor compromised the GPON router on port 8080, put some malware on there that starts scanning for other devices on port 3333 TCP, which is using an exploit for the Claymore uh, cryptocurrency software to uh, basically overwrite it with their own wallet ID so it starts mining for the bad actor's uh, Ethereum wallet instead of the original person's. So I guess we'll see how that shakes out over the next couple of weeks if it settles down or whatnot. But I thought it was interesting that we had a lot of visibility into a lot of the devices participating in these various types of activity. And how about as far as the different botnets uh, competing, once one takes over one of these routers, does it then lock it so that another one still can't try to use it? So I haven't checked. I don't know for sure. In the past, we've been aware of other types of scenarios where a lot of these guys do try to patch the vulnerability so that nobody else can come in and take over their device that they just compromised. Um, inevitably, a lot of times with these types of IoT embedded devices, they usually don't have a lot of persistence to them. So if you reboot the device, power reboot it, uh, it's going to forget everything, and then it's still going to be vulnerable again, and then the next person can get it, which has been traditionally the problem here, is that with a power reboot, everything's clean, and then even if the guy got in, tried to like prevent somebody from coming in a second time, if the power cycles it, it's free game for anybody again. Okay. So. Uh, anyway, so that's all we had for this week. I just thought there were some interesting corollaries between a lot of the activity there. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.